you would, go ahead and take your Bibles out, turn them open to the book of Daniel, where we resume our study this morning, continue on in Daniel 11, as we have been now. This is making our way through the prophecy of the king of the north and the king of the south. And as I've told you, and we will see again today, that those, those phrases used within Daniel 11 uh, often are, are meaning different, sometimes from verse to verse are referring to different people. So Daniel 11 becomes a more complex chapter of Scripture when we try to delineate out exactly who the prophecies are about and what it's getting at. But it also, as I've said now, this is the third week in a row I've said it, it's just truly remarkable how precise it is, especially regarding uh, details. When you look at history, ancient history specifically, uh, the uh, coming of Greece, but what kind of predates that or Actually, what's happening now is all that Rome is on the scene, and so you've got a lot of ancient history that's kind of converging at once, but it's really interesting when you see how and you piece it all together, and as you're piecing it together, you're beginning to understand something fundamental. Why does Daniel 11 take time to give us these intricate prophecies about ancient history? Because all these pieces are being put in, into a certain place that are pointing to why we need Jesus. There's got to be a better answer because wars and more wars and kingdoms and conquering kingdoms and putting the right king in place and having the right ruler rule is not fixing the problem. People are still dying and suffering and lost. And so history is one giant arrow that points us to Jesus and his coming, his incarnation, his incarnation, and then his subsequent life and death. Because that is the remedy for what's ailing the people in Daniel 11. That's why they're at war, because something is missing from their hearts. Israel failed in her witness when she was sent to exile. Of course, we understand that God did it as a result of sin in their midst. But He wanted them to go out to Babylon, where God sent them, so that they could be a light in the city. Israel didn't do that. In fact, we've already read in Daniel that their hearts remained hardened in exile. So already, when they're returning back from exile, it's a lost cause because what needed to happen did not happen. We can change rulers and presidents and all kinds of leaders all day long, but until the human heart is changed by the gospel of Jesus, it all comes to nothing. And so that's why we take time to weed through verse by verse and find out so that again we can read again and again and again that Antiochus failed, Seleucus failed, Demetrius failed, Ptolemy failed, Alexander the Great failed, Xerxes failed, and go on and on and on and on and on. But the Bible is talking about the failure of every last one of them saying they are as nothing compared to Yahweh. They are as nothing compared to Christ. And so, this is where we are. This morning, we pick right back up where we left off, Daniel chapter 11. We'll start in verse 20, and we will read to verse 35. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. 
Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his father nor his father's father have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And when he shall return to his land with great wealth, or he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and enrage and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they, will, they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the end of time, for it still awaits the appointed time. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing and help us ferret out all these pronouns, he's and his's. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word, for your mercy in it. Be with us now as we lay it open, as we dive in. God, guide us, I pray. And not just so that we can learn something in our minds, but so that our hearts can be renewed and transformed. So that when we walk away from this word, this paragraph, we say we shall never be the same again. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. When we think about time, time is a consuming reality for human beings. Richard preached about uh, this somewhat not too long ago regarding James and us uh, committing our lives to the Lord's will. But when we think about time, it really is a, a consuming idea. We sing about it. There are many songs about time. We complain about it. We never have enough time. We write stories about it, stories that revolve around the passing of time or time travel or all sorts of other things that go along with time. And when we think about time, it's not something that we easily master. We could constantly be better about using our time. It's something that does often get away from us. How many times have you been somewhere and thought, well, the time has gotten away from me? All these things are true. And so when you think about how much of your life revolves around the notion of time, it's actually pretty remarkable that this idea, this, this, the notion of time is one of the most dominating forces in our lives. Growing up, my mother is a, an exceedingly punctual person, and she instilled in my brother and me, you do not show up late. You do not show up late because somebody's time is their most valuable commodity. Is it, though? Is time the most valuable commodity? I mean, I'm punctual. I like to, I like to show up on time. But as I've grown up, I've started to question perhaps it's not because in Psalm 31, 15, the psalmist tells us that our time is in the Lord's hands. 
how do we use our time for the Lord's glory? How do we use our time to bring the Lord or to extol the Lord to the world? Ecclesiastes 3, the famous paragraph that the birds made a song about, there's a proper time for everything. So when you read the Bible, you can see that God mentions time. He takes time into account. But the way from the God perspective of time, time is an instrument, right? Time is a servant of the Lord, not our master. We are not slaves to time. We are servants to the living God. And God uses time to accomplish His purposes. The time you are sitting at right now is a preordained purpose of God. This very time is God's will for us to be here and hear from Daniel. And not just so that we can grow in our, our intellect, but so that something rich and beautiful and true can happen in our lives and the lives of the world. I don't know what that will be for all of us. But this time is God's time for our good and His glory. I've said this before. I said it last week. The present paragraph, you just heard me read it, it is more of the same. The he's and he has and they have and then he did and then he did. And it's just, it's still walking down the annals of history. We're still dealing with the raging of the nations. We're still dealing with the rise and fall of kingdoms and kings. But the writer is, is making something very clear for us this morning. I don't know if you caught it, but within those verses, 20 to 35, there are about seven references to time that is made. And seven references to time are important because he's telling us in the midst of all what's going on that there is a plan here. This is not as chaotic as it looks from the pages of history. Oh, this kingdom took this kingdom and that kingdom took that kingdom. It was, there's an appointed time. There's an end for the appointed time. There's an appointed time and at that time. So we're hearing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God is using the instrument of time to bring about His purposes. He's using a time for this and a time for that, much like Ecclesiastes says there's a time for everything. And so when we, when we walk away from this paragraph, what we really have to take away from it is that God decrees and oversees each season that we live through and in. God is decreeing and overseeing this very hard season in the life of the world. It wasn't just hard for Israel here. It was, I mean, that's who we're focusing on. It was hard for anybody who had to endure under the tyranny that was happening. And make no mistake, those ancient cultures, they were tyrannical. They brought death and heartache and war to the world. So we're being told here something very important for us to remember, that time is subservient to God, that our time, time in general, is subservient to God. Though we are subject to time, granted, we have to live within a certain time. We have to do things within an orderly time. Time is not our master. God is. So this is not me telling you just to go be late everywhere. You should still choose punctuality. That's a good character trait to have. <laughs> You're welcome. But see, we're so accustomed to thinking of the passing of time as our joy or as our doom. You know, when enough time passes, we get this, or too much time has passed, and now I'm having to deal with this. It's so often we associate it with these two, uh, these two polar opposites of, it's just, yay, it's great when time passes, or oh, it's awful 
oh, you know, just yesterday I was 25 and just feels like tomorrow I'll be 65. And, and that's how, so much of our lives are consumed with that line of thinking. And then there's this common notion, you've probably heard me deal with this before. Have you ever heard, I know you have, the old cliche, time heals all wounds. It doesn't. Time doesn't heal all wounds. One of my favorite writers, who I'll not mention, says that some wounds go too deep for time to mend. It needs something bigger than time. Ask anybody who's had a hard ordeal in their life and ask them, has time fully healed that wound? They may be great. They may be living a good life and be happy, but I guarantee you there is an ache there that time is not going to heal. Only Jesus can do that. So we tend to see time as the healer. We tend to see time as the helper in relationships. Ah, just give it time. And sometimes we do need to give it time. Sometimes it's best just to zip it and walk away and let some time go between before you come back together. But beloved of God, time is not going to heal anything. God heals. The wisdom of God applied brings joy and healing and grace. So when we think about the things that are normally ascribed to time, they're really in the province of God. That's what God's job is. God does that. Our days are numbered, the Psalms say. Our time is set. We're not going to get any more or any less than God has decreed. And when we grasp this, and I'm trying to grasp it myself, it helps us to see things in life as it truly is, things as they truly are, life as it's meant to be. Corum Deo, before the face of God, and that's what matters. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one thing we want to see this morning out of all of this that we read is this. Even evil must follow the sovereign schedule of God. That even evil must follow the sovereign schedule of God. So what we're dealing with here is you see this refrain running through here called the appointed time. So there's an appointed time for things that are happening. In other words, this is not just happenstance. And so that leads us to the idea that God controls the times, not chance, not circumstance, and not coincidence. It's God who controls the time, not chance or circumstance or coincidence. God has a plan. But what this paragraph is doing here for us, if you'll notice, it was primarily about one man from the Seleucid kingdom dealing with some different people from the Ptolemaic kingdom. This paragraph is setting up who is the desolator in history, or at least the desolator in the book of Daniel. And this is going to be twofold, multi-layered, and we'll come to it. But it's, it's setting us up to hear about and to see the wickedness of Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, um, which I'm sure most of you at least have heard something about him. So as, as this begins to unfold in verse 20, then there shall arise in his place, who is his here, well, that his there's Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great. Remember, he died unceremoniously in the previous paragraph. And so, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. So, Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV, who reigned from about 187 to 176 B.C., he takes over the throne. And we're told immediately his father had been put under heavy tribute to Rome when he had come against Rome. And he had to, had to have a, he had a policy of heavy taxation. So we're told immediately that Seleucus IV has the same practice. He keeps the same practice with the heavy taxation. That word exactor of tribute, that's exactly what that means. It's a tax collector. 
And we do know from history that Seleucus IV had a tax collector who was pretty ruthless named Heliodorus. And Heliodorus went out to the provinces and he collected his taxes. And so Seleucus, thinking to, I'm going to take it out of, uh, a page out of my father's book, he thought about going down to Jerusalem to attack the Jerusalem temple, to loot it, to get the goods out of there, pay some taxes. And he had a dream. I don't, the, the contents of the dream are not all that clear, but what, whatever it was, he decided he was not going to that temple, and he didn't go. And so a few other things that kind of made some of the people in his regime mad, Heliodorus, his tax collector, just eventually poisoned him and killed him, took him out. Why am I telling you all these details that you could read in your Western Civ book? For this very reason right here. But within a few days, read a short amount of time, he shall be broken, that is, Seleucus IV, neither in anger nor in battle. Now, he was broken, the anger being a reference to his dad, his dad being killed as he's pillaging temples. He wasn't in battle when he was killed. He was unceremoniously poisoned as he stayed in his own palatial estate and he was broken. But don't you love… There's two things I want you to pick up from here. But within a few days, short amount of time, he will be broken. It's passive. There's two things that are at work here. Somebody's got a plan because somebody knows the time when this is happening. And so Lucas the fourth is the recipient of the action. Something's being done to him from outside himself. So with the combination of the few days and then him being the recipient of the action, we are getting our first glimpse right in the first verse of this paragraph that somebody else is in control besides the Seleucid dynasty or the Ptolemaic dynasty. And that has to run a note of hope that God controls the seasons. God controls the times. As, as terrible as these people were, God had a plan and was moving them in a direction. So, verse 21 and his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. In comes Antiochus IV. He is raised up. Now, a few things to delineate here. He's a contemptible, contemptible person, and he was, to whom royal majesty has not been given. Let me tell you why. When Seleucus IV dies, he's got a son named Demetrius. Demetrius is the rightful heir to the throne. But because of their incidences with Rome, Demetrius had been taken as a hostage to Rome. So Demetrius wasn't there to claim his throne. So Antiochus just took it. And it says that he will take the throne by flattery, read bribery. He has no royal majesty. He bribes people. So what we know from history is that he took money and bribed people to support him, to get him up to where he would be the ruler. And so we see this one who we've already read about, by the way, in Daniel 8, the little horn is Antiochus IV. Now we see him living up to his contemptible nature already. The first thing he does is rob his nephew of the throne. And by the way, the men he's going to be fighting, Ptolemy VI and Ptolemy VIII, he's also related to them. This was, this was very ingrown family back in that time. They were, there were lots of um, dynasties that mixed because of marriages that for, for political purposes. But when, when we, so he seizes the kingdom by bribery, he, he takes it. And so we read further, he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, 
even the prince of the covenant. Verse 22 is a summation of everything there he's about to talk about to verse 27. Now, verse 22, what he's talking about is a campaign that Antiochus had with Ptolemy VI, who was the king of Egypt, and he swept their army away. He totally decimated them, blew them right off the battlefield so that he was without a doubt the one in power. And so as we read, he says, armies shall be utterly swept away and be broken even the prince of the covenant. Who is the prince of the covenant? That is or Ptolemy VI. Why is it calling him that? Well, you're going to read here in just a few verses, but I'm going to go ahead and tip my hand. Ptolemy VI and Antiochus IV make a covenant, an alliance, a treaty together. Antiochus convinces him, we're going to make a treaty together, and we're going to take over Egypt. We're going to rule it together. Like, I'm going to help you. He's, he's totally being deceitful. But what they're trying to do, in the absence, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm just trying to keep all this so we can all stay on the same page. I tell you, I've got so much rolling around in here, I, I'm not even going to get it all out, which is good for you. So he beats Ptolemy 6 in verse 22, and we're going to find out here in a few minutes that he takes him as a hostage. And while he's hostage, while he's held hostage in the kingdom of Antiochus, Ptolemy 6's brother, they were creative in their names, Ptolemy VIII, is, becomes the king of Egypt. And so Ptolemy VI decides, well, I want Egypt back. And so what he does is he comes to Antiochus and says, let's make a deal. How about this? We join our forces. I will take, uh, or we'll go in and we'll take Egypt and we'll, we'll rule it together. We'll be a team. We'll rule it together. And so and from that time, verse 23, an alliance is made with him. and He shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. So that's what we're getting at here. Verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his father's nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among the plunder, the spoil, and the goods. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Who is the he in that verse? It's Antiochus IV. Why is he now attacking again? Because in the meantime, Ptolemy VI decides, you know what? I'm going to side with my brother against Antiochus. And he breaks treaty and goes back to Ptolemy VIII. Antiochus, enraged, enraged, rightfully so, decides, fine. We know from history that Antiochus IV plundered all the richest parts of Egypt, just went in and looted them and plundered. And then how did he build his army? As the verse says, he took that plunder, he took that loot, he took that spoil, and he was bribing the people of the ancient world. Come, come, get riches in my kingdom. You'll be rich in my kingdom. And why does his army keep growing? Because he, he rules by bribery, flattery. But we see a little phrase in verse 24, beloved, that to me is one of the most important things we read in this paragraph. All the history is fine, that, it, that this prophecy lines up with history. Keep in mind, this prophecy was given several hundred years before these things happened. In verse 24, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. We can look at this and we can say, why in the world would God allow this to happen? And that to me, or honestly, is the unanswerable question. What we come around to when we read phrases like, but only for a time, why it's happening, we can't answer. 
but who's in control of it becomes clear to us. And I think this is valuable for us because we live in seasons of pure negativity where we're just kind of lost in the futility of the world and, and we can ask ourselves, why in the world is this happening? Why? And that becomes a question, beloved of God, that we can't answer. But what we can answer is, I don't know why. When someone looks at me and, or has in the past, you know, why did my son have to die? I don't know. God knows, but I know who is with us in this moment, sheltering us through some storms, walking with us in the very depths of our grief. And so when we look at this, when the nations rage, we understand it is only for a time because time is temporal. Time is a servant. They will come and they will go. And beloved, I'm not saying so it makes it easy when we have to walk it. That's not my point. My point is, is that when we walk it, we understand I am not alone, and someone else is in control of this, and it's working for a good end. Now, let us think of our elder brother, Jesus, who walked a pathway that none of us could walk so that we now can walk a pathway that we are on by means of the gospel, and that gives us hope. So when you come to this, yes, it's tedious. These details are tedious if we're going to ferret them out in terms of history, but I don't want us to lose sight of the overarching point that we are gaining a rich theology of time here, a deeper understanding of what it means to live in space and time to the glory of God. So, for a time, God limits evil. God controls the seasons. Do we think that evil is, we are evil as we could be? No, and neither was he, because it's limited by God. Verses 25 through 27 really kind of are summing up. That when I told you that 22 through 27 is kind of all the same thing, 25 and 26 and 27 kind of sum up the wars back and forth with Antiochus and Ptolemy. He shall stir up, verse 25, he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south. This is Antiochus against Ptolemy with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great army and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat food at his table or, or food, eat from his food uh, shall break him. What's interesting about that is Ptolemy VI had some advisors who knew the strength of Antiochus' army, who knew he would most likely get beat if he went up against them, and who counseled him, go to war. We think you'll have victory. So plots, he's deceived. People who share his food, who eat at his table, convince him to go to a war they knew he'd lose, and he did lose. He lost. Why am I telling you this? Because it's that intricate of detail that is being prophesied several hundred years prior to. So we, under, we remember Anti Antiochus IV, he won. He joins with Ptolemy VI to win Egypt, and they do win Egypt. That happens. Then Ptolemy VI breaks covenant. He joins with Ptolemy VIII to rule Egypt, and they do. That happens. As for the two kings, Ptolemy VI, Antiochus IV, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, break covenant, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Let us sound like a broken record here. A time appointed by God for the purposes of God to accomplish the things of God 
ultimately for the glory of God and the good of the people of God. Why is it worth recounting all this? To be reminded that in your own sphere of life that every detail is ordered by God, that God has a plan for you as well. It seems like such a simple idea. We say, well, God has a plan for us. Well, of course we know that, but do we live like we believe it? Or do we live as if time is really the master? That it's time that we have to have. I need more time. I need less time. Don't take my time. Your time isn't worth it to me. You've got so many things and thoughts that come into the sphere of our thinking that should stop us in our tracks and ask us, is time my master? Is time my most precious commodity? Or is the Lord my master and His will my most precious commodity? I promise you, chapel folks, I am preaching to Brad this morning. I am preaching to me first and foremost because I have made an idol out of time in my own life. And I have seen places where I let time be the driving force and not what's good and right and beautiful and true. I have abandoned relationships or not pursued them because of the time it might take. I'm confessing my own sin here because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this and being reminded this week that so often we focus on the time and not on the opportunity before us. I do, me. And perhaps, perhaps that's the right decision sometimes, but it can't always be the right decision. Because if, if our time is truly God's, beloved, that liberates us to a certain degree. That liberates us to live boldly, to live more lovingly, to live more for truth, to not shrink away from things that God would have us walk through. It reminds us that something greater than time is among us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. When we, when we dive into this, we recognize this is not chance. This is not happenstance. God is weaving a story, and it's intricate. It's beautiful. It's hard. I know there are many struggles in this room this morning. I have my own, and you have yours. There's much brokenness in this room this morning. Somewhere along the way in Christianity, at least in, our, in America, we got this notion that it should be easy, and if it's not easy, then God isn't good. That is a lie. God is good, and it's hard. God is good, life is tough. God is good, we suffer. God is good, we are persecuted. God is good, we hurt and walk through valleys of deep, deep pain. God is still good in all those things. Moving on. Verse 28, he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. Now you're getting your first indication of his own persecution or his own thoughts of persecution. In about 169 B.C., somewhere in there, Antiochus IV is coming home from Egypt, and he stops in by Palestine to, under the guise of, hey, I'm just here to look around and see how things are. And on their Sabbath day, his army attacks the Jewish people. At this time, they killed about 80,000 Jews. They plundered their temple. And this would be the beginning of what we've read about in history or in the Apocrypha of the Maccabean Revolt. This starts what would become the Maccabean Revolt in Palestine and in Israel. So 
Now the board is set. So here we get again. 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and come again, or come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. I'm going to stop right there. So Antiochus decides it's time to go back. Of course, according to God's plan, he goes back to Egypt, and he's humbled this time, and I'll tell you why. When he gets to Egypt this time, there's somebody else there besides Egypt, a little country called Rome. When you read about the ships of Katim, I'll tell you a little bit about that word. Katim, historically and originally, referred specifically to the island of Cyprus or to Cyprus. Now, uh, as time would pass, it became more associated with some of the other Mediterranean islands as just a general term for the Mediterranean-type place. In this particular context, as it would later become, as a shorthand reference to Rome, that's exactly what was going on here. So the ships of Katim is Rome. And we know from history that Antiochus marched his army up to the gates of Ptolemy's land, and a Roman general met him outside and said, you have two options. You can attack and be at war with Egypt and Rome, or you can turn around and go. And Antiochus kind of wanted to stall to make his decision. History says that the Roman general took a staff and drew a circle around him and said, I need your decision before you step out of that circle. So wisely, Antiochus went home. Now, why tell you all that? Because that sets the pace for him to be enraged, verse 30, and take action against the holy covenant, which is the holy people of God. Why does he persecute Israel so fiercely? Because he's angry. And in this time, we see him, he turned, so he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Actually, the, the remainder of this paragraph comes together right here. So he takes his anger out on the Jews, and he goes to see if he can turn by bribery any from the faith or if he can persecute the rest. So when we read about the persecution, verses 31 to 35 are kind of one lump sum. Primarily, the driving force in this little paragraph is this, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So right here, we have this, this statement about what Antiochus is going to do in the temple of the Jews. What does he do? Historically, we know that he sets up an idol, and an, alt, an idol of Zeus, and an altar to Zeus, and he sacrifices a pig to it which would have desecrated, desolated the temple. And so we begin to see the regime of Antiochus. Now remember, back last Sunday when we were looking at this, it was this regime that Israel had wanted in the first place. And now we're seeing, be careful what you wish for. Verse 31, forces shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and take away the regular burnt offerings. So we're starting to see a suppression of religion. But let me tell you what we know from history. He stops the burnt offerings so they can no longer offer sacrifices. He makes it illegal for Jewish people to worship in any fashion. Starting to ring a bell with Nebuchadnezzar and that statue that you only pray to that statue. You're seeing another state-enforced religion. You can't honor your own religion. Now you're going to honor ours. What will you do? The Jews, at this time, 
If they were caught sacrificing, they were killed. If they were caught worshiping in any way, they were killed. If they were caught possessing a scroll of the Old Testament, they were killed. If they were called in, caught in any sort of Sabbath day observation, they were killed. If they were caught honoring the right of circumcision in the eight-day-old males, they were killed. This is a big pagan boot trying to stamp the life of God out of a culture. So when we look at this, this is not idle. This is not just some minor thing. They are trying to break a people from God. And what will they do? What, how will they respond? How will the people respond? Well, you've got two ways. Either they're going to cave or they're going to stand. They're going to cave or they're going to stand. That's where we are with this. And we, we're, we read, he, he will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Those who decide to cave, he flatters them out. Yes, come over here. It'll be fine here. You'll be good here. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. What a hearty verse that is. The people who know their God, that's the clarifier, or that's the qualifier, rather. The people who know their God will stand firm. They will take action. Those are guarantees. That's a promise, a prophetic promise about the people of God. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame and captivity and, and plunder. They're going to stand. They're going to teach others what it means to stand, and they're going to be killed for it. They're going to be sacrificed for their stand. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. We know historically a few people did try to aid Israel in their struggle with Antiochus, but nothing of, of great mention. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. What does he mean? Many join in the fight for their own purposes, either as to intrigue for Antiochus or because their farm is being threatened. They've got to do something. Desperate is what they are. Then we read this, and some of the wise shall stumble so, so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. He begins this with a note of time in verse 20, and he ends with a note of time, letting us know that time are in God's hands. Now, So we understand their suffering so that they can be purified. We understand that God is in control. But why this, why this picture of Antiochus IV? Why so many verses given to him more than any of the other kings combined in Daniel 11? I'll tell you why. Because I think we're getting a picture of the Antichrist who is coming into the world, that Antiochus himself is a foreshadowing of this creature. Antiochus himself is an iteration of the evil that exists in the kingdom of darkness. We see it in his stamping out religion and him asserting false religion and him killing. I mean, this uh, with no sanctity of life, no, no sort of grace or mercy. He's openly hostile to God. He seeks death like Satan. He seeks to pervert like Satan. He seeks all the things that Satan would do. Why are we getting this here? Because we're being reminded there is a cosmic battle happening. The seed of the woman is at odds with the seed of the serpent. One of the reasons I wanted to read Psalm 1 this morning is it gets at that notion, the wicked and the righteous. 
The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are at battle. In other words, this is bigger than just Seleucid and, and Ptolemaic and, and Israel and Rome. This is, has cosmic value. We're not just fighting for land and plunder. Souls hang in the balance. And so we're being challenged as we look at this prophecy that would become history to be people of the truth, people mastered by God and not subservient to time. What can we say of this? Well, what we can say is that since God reigns, even in hard times, that we can trust Him. You know, I think that probably sounds like a horribly obvious statement to you, and it kind of does to me. But sadly, we struggle to trust in hard times. And I've heard people say it. I've thought it myself before. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Why would God want me to walk through this? And we often just can't fathom the reality that sometimes the things worked in us can only be accomplished through the hard times. I don't love that. It's not my favorite thing, but I know it's a true thing. I know that there are some lessons in Brad's life that he's learned that have, could, I could only have learned them in the hard time, in the crucible that I had to walk to learn it. And sometimes I have to walk multiple crucibles until I learn it. I'm very hard-headed. Israel suffered from the notion that the right man could save them. We suffer from a similar notion. We tend to think that the right blank, you fill it in, the right blank will somehow make my life better or safer. And it doesn't. It won't. God's constant message to us is our lives are in His hands. Our time is His, and we can trust Him. And so that when He withholds that time that you're reaching or He gives that time you're not wanting, that those are good gifts. I'm not saying they're easy. I'm not saying don't weep and lament and grieve. Yes, weep, lament, grieve when it's hard, even when it's a gift from God. Yes, be sad. But we can still have joy knowing that we can trust the giver of the gift. We can trust the giver, the one who's laying this burden down, because the burden that He's given us, Christ is shouldering with us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Oh, what a gift. Hope in hard times is not in getting to easier times. Hope in hard times is in the one who is always with us, even to the end of the age. And beloved, we can walk through this life weeping and rejoicing, and we should, because God is true and everything else is a lie, and our times are truly in His hands. Please pray with me. God, thank You for Your Word this morning. It is complex, much we could still say. But as we come to it, we understand that there is an appointed time, that You do devise seasons and systems, that You are sovereign, and that You ordain our days before one of them came to pass. And so we submit them to You this morning. God, I confess my own sin that I so often want to hang on to my time, view it as my time, view my days as my days. Why can't I just do what I want to do in my days? Father, forgive me. 
and forgive anyone else who would join me in praying that prayer about themselves. And Father, may we truly begin to see our lives as your life, our time as your time, our days as your days, our, our resources as your resources to be used for your glory. Oh, Father, may we lay it all before you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.